Hello, and welcome to the Eisner Amper podcast series. I'm Jim Agar, and with me today is my longtime colleague, Mark Brown, who, like me, is a managing director in the Eisner Amper Forensic Litigation and Valuation Services Practice. Mark is a compliance specialist within our group. In light of the upcoming fraud week, today's podcast will focus on a fraud-related topic, how senior management attestations can help small to medium-sized companies strengthen their anti-fraud compliance programs. Today, Mark and I will chat about his views on some straightforward practical steps that companies can use to strengthen their governance and compliance programs. Mark, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jim. Mark, senior management attestations, that's a broad topic. I think we should probably start off by asking you to define what this is, senior management attestations. What are companies attesting to? How does this affect compliance? Well, in the context of corporate anti-fraud compliance, an attestation is a statement that expresses a conclusion by an individual, in this case, a member of senior management, about an organization's implementation of internal controls that help to detect and to prevent fraud. And in my experience, conducting occupational fraud investigations involving schemes of various types, right? Think in terms of theft of cash on hand, theft of cash receipts, fraudulent disbursements, larceny, et cetera. One of the common themes that I've observed has been the failure of companies to fully implement the internal controls that are designed to prevent and quickly detect fraudulent activity. So what I'm describing here is an added component to the compliance program to have senior members of management sign off or attest that the internal controls that the company has agreed to put in place are indeed in place and have been fully implemented. Great. So, you know, we've heard about controls, obviously, in some of the bigger cases that unfortunately have hit the headlines over the last couple of decades. But your focus here is on small to medium companies. Why? Yes. I think compliance attestations are a good idea for all companies, regardless of size. However, larger companies typically have more established and formal compliance programs in place, right? They've got more compliance resources and therefore there's less need for help. At smaller businesses, in contrast, senior management often don't think of risk proactively. Rather, they respond after a fraud or a cyber incident has occurred. So attestations can help these small businesses drive improvements in compliance and help to avoid a company being victimized by fraud. Okay, no, that makes sense. I always like to talk about these things in the context of real life examples. You know, maybe you can give me an example or give our listeners an example from a fraud investigation that you've conducted recently that might, you know, help shed more light on what happens when internal controls don't work. In a typical fraud or cyber investigation, one of the observations will be this is the control or the internal control that, that failed, right? It didn't act as it should have in either detecting or helping to prevent the fraudulent activity. And a significant amount of cybercrime involves phishing, phishing PH or business email compromise schemes. We're seeing this in the news on a you know, very regular basis. Last year, I investigated a scheme that targeted an industrial supply company in North Dakota. Uh, the company had an ongoing project in Columbia with a large number of welders working there for several weeks. And what the perpetrator did 
was he spoofed the email of the manager at the hotel for the welders from the company we're staying. And the spoofed email had an added letter I in the email address, which was not easily detected. So this email was sent by the bad guy uh, to the company's accounts payable manager requesting payment of an invoice from the hotel and offering a 10% discount if it was paid within 72 hours. That's a typical scenario that you'll see is that sense of urgency that, hey, pay quickly and you might get some sort of a discount. And that's indeed what we saw in this example. And the message, you know, seeking the, the payment and offering the discount included wire instructions. Yeah, this is almost like it's urgent. We know you've got controls in place, but this has just got to get done. It's kind of tempting to get the victim to say, okay, well, you know, I'll kind of cross the T's and dot the I's later, but I need to get this out now. Exactly. That sense of, hey, I know you've got, you know, whatever the, the normal steps might be, but this is a special situation. Let's be practical, trying to push the person to make a decision that maybe after the fact, they would come to regret. And again, that's that's the very purpose for having controls in place to prevent that type of bad behavior. And in this case, so the, you know, again, this is at the company, the, the AP manager, he did in fact recognize the hotel manager's name in the email because he had had prior communications, but he did not detect that slight difference in the email address, right? Again, this is a phishing attack. He also did not check to see if the attached wire instructions were different from the wire details already in file. This, this was really the big mistake, right? And the company had a policy in place that required verbal confirmations of wires if, and there's really two scenarios, if one, it's a new vendor, or two, if there's a change in the vendor's wire details. So in this instance, it, would, it should have been recognized as a change in the vendor's wire details. Unfortunately, the AP manager did not verbally confirm, which would have meant a phone call back to the hotel Right. And then that person at the hotel presumably would have said, we did not send this invoice. And then maybe upon closer scrutiny, they would have recognized this as a phishing attack. But the uh, AP manager did not do that, went ahead and wired the funds to the fraudster. So in this scenario, the company had a control in place, the requirement that wires be verbally confirmed prior to execution. But the manager did not follow the protocol. And that's what exposed the company to fraud. It's interesting. Sometimes people tend to think of uh, controls as this big book of documented procedures. And big books of document procedures, uh, you know, a lot of times will get put on a shelf and people will go about you know, their business. This kind of reminds me of a case that I did several years ago where there was a control in place where checks, manual checks over a certain amount needed to have two signatures. Uh, that's all well and good, but the primary signer just had a rubber stamp of the second uh, authorized signer to expedite things from a standpoint of we need to be, be very, very practical. We need to get this out. And you can probably figure out what happened there. The control was in place, but it wasn't implemented properly. It wasn't monitored. And there was a very, very easy workaround. And it turned out it was a workaround that almost everybody who was in place in management knew about. But getting back to your example, which was really around controls around wires, what are some other key anti-fraud controls that you've seen or that you recommend? When I think of anti-fraud controls, I generally break them into four categories, and by no means is this an exhaustive list, but it, at least for me, it helps to sort of break them into these, these different groupings, and, and then it helps to sort of shed some light on the types of controls that would be relevant from a fraud perspective. 
So the first one, the payment controls that we've touched on, requiring verbal confirmations of new wires or changes to the, the bank details of an existing vendor, also to require multi-factor authentication, right? Especially for online banking, for instance, right? A simple user ID and a password will not be sufficient to prevent fraud. We see that all of the time, right? This, that's, that's a pretty basic one, but again, it's not enough to have it as part of your big book of procedures. You got to have it fully implemented. You got to make sure that the personnel are following, uh, you know, the prescribed procedures uh, set up in the uh, in the controls. Um, second category is vendor controls. The key here is that you you want to be making sure that there's at least two employees involved when a new vendor is added. In a typical scenario, you'd have one of the employees create the entry and a second to review and approve the new entry, right? Make sure that there's segregation of duties there to prevent a single person adding a new vendor. Third category is changes to payroll. Similar to controls around vendors, when a new employee is added or when an employee leaves a company, those steps need to include two individuals in the process right? So that not a single individual is able to add an employee or delete an employee from, from the payroll. Also, payroll listings should be periodically reviewed for accuracy, right? This will help to prevent ghost employees uh, or people staying on payroll after they have left the company. And I've seen several examples of this uh, where, you know, someone within the company has a scheme involving someone who has left the company so the former employee continues to get paid and it isn't detected in some cases for years, which obviously is you know, a great drain on the company and, and can be quite significant fraud. Yeah, I saw that in the case not too long ago, and it was, you know, same sort of fact pattern. And, uh, you know, the same person was uh, responsible not only for uh, terminating employees off payroll, changing addresses and maintaining, you know, sort of those profiles. As you can imagine, this person was living very well on multiple paychecks until she got caught. So I hear what you're saying there. I do. Yeah, and that could be part of the potato chip phenomenon. I think you may be familiar with this, Jim, where... You know, you have one potato chip, so you make one change and you end up with one small fraud scheme that you think, hey, I got away with that. Just like the bowl of potato chips, you're probably not going to stop there, right? And so chip by chip, suddenly the, the bowl is empty in front of you. And similarly, you know, the fraud schemes can grow and grow and the impact in the company can be quite significant, especially if over time it's not, it's not detected. Uh, I have one final type of internal control. So this is a fourth one, and that's the whistleblower hotline or some sort of complaint mechanism. According to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, fraud losses at companies with hotlines were almost 50% lower than at companies without hotlines. So just adding a hotline can, can make a significant difference. And of course, it's not just adding the hotline, it's making sure that the employees know about the hotline, they feel comfortable knowing how to use the hotline. They feel that they'll be protected. There won't be retaliation, et cetera. But that's a key internal control is having some sort of a complaint mechanism in place. 
Sure. No, I think that's right. And one of the factors, you know, when you talk about hotlines and hotlines being associated with companies that are better protected, you know, it's the companies with the hotlines that are the ones that tend to have a more robust and rigorous internal control structure with regard to fraud prevention. It's part of an overall serious uh, anti-fraud environment, but it's definitely a good indicator that that is present within an organization. Mark, we talked a little bit about attestation before, but let's really get into it. How does the attestation process work? Who would be involved in it? What would be the steps? So there's obviously different ways that this can be designed and it, and it should be designed based on the specific needs of, of the company. But what I would look to is to include a routine, perhaps quarterly sign-off by two or three of the senior executives, and then have them provide details of any exceptions. And so if they're unable to attest that, you know, such and such a control has been fully implemented, then you'd you'd certainly want to understand why, to what extent was it not fully implemented? What's the exception here? And so that, that capturing of that detail is also key. Typically the CFO has the most responsibility for compliance, at least regarding financial controls. But I do think it's advisable for other senior executives to provide attestations. So companies should consider including others. Again, it's going to depend on the circumstances, but the CEO, the COO, et cetera. And this can help to really reinforce the sense that the compliance uh, responsibility doesn't lie with one individual, right? It, It really should run within the organization, throughout the organization, and it absolutely needs to start at the top. So this is another component of that tone at the top and again, reinforcing the importance of compliance throughout the organization. Other options include adding authority matrix sign-off to the attestation process to ensure that appropriate review and approval of key decisions are taking place and to include confirmation that key compliance components have been enacted and are being carried out as planned. For example, periodic fraud or cyber risk assessments and periodic testing to confirm compliance These, to the extent that they're components of the program, and they should be, then there should be the sign-off, again, this could be done on a quarterly basis, but sign-off to the attestation that these are in place uh, and that the authority matrix is being followed by senior management. Mark, uh, thank you for that. We certainly covered a lot of ground today. Like anything else in the world of fraud and forensics, It's still the tip of the iceberg, but in this limited amount of time, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? I do think it's important to think of compliance programs as evolving over time. They're not static. They need to adapt to the changes in the company's risk profile, as well as changes in the business environment. And by including attestations of compliance and by including such things as Authority matrix sign-off, small and medium-sized businesses can drive improvements in compliance and be better prepared to avoid or at least quickly detect breaches. Mark, it's always a pleasure to get together with you. Thank you very much for sharing your perspective today with our listeners about what companies can do to prevent and detect fraud. Thank you, Jim. It's, It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Eisner Amper podcast series. Visit EisnerAmper.com for more information on this and a host of other topics. And join us for our next Eisner Amper podcast when we get down to business.